Today I'm bringing you an episode that I know Drilled listeners will appreciate from a show called Living Planet. Living Planet is a podcast from Germany's international broadcaster, DW, hosted by Sam Baker and Charlie Shield. On this episode of Living Planet that we're sharing with you today, three experts on climate disinformation discuss how factually inaccurate and misleading information travels around the web. DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Living Planet. Earlier this week, I had the great pleasure of hosting a live discussion via Twitter Spaces with expert panelists from around the world. We talked about climate disinformation, and we discussed how and why this factually inaccurate and misleading information about climate change moves around the web. We also talked about what needs to be done about it. Here's that conversation. Today, we thought we'd bring this conversation online as we will very appropriately be talking about climate information and misinformation and how it spreads around the internet. So joining me to break this all down and share their research and insights on the topic, we've got John Cook, who is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Climate Change Communication Research Hub at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. He's also founded the climate science blog, Skeptical Science, and created the Cranky Uncle Game, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Overall, his research focuses on using critical thinking to build resilience against misinformation. Welcome, John. Thanks very much. It's really great to be here. And joining us from Italy, we also have Stella Levantesi, who investigates the history of climate change denial for her column, Gaslit, for Smog. She's also written a book in Italian, which I will not butcher the name of, but maybe she can say it in a minute, Uh, but it translates to Climate Liars, and it looks into the power players of climate denial and disinformation campaigns. Stella is also a TEDx speaker and has written for other publications like The New Republic, Nature, Wired, Internazionale, and Il Manifesto. Thanks for joining us, Stella. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. And then rounding out our panel, calling in bright and early from Uruguay is Alex Stinson, who works as a senior program strategist at the Wikimedia Foundation, where he focuses on how multilingual volunteer communities can best address knowledge gaps on Wikipedia. Hi, Alex. Hi, it's so great to be here. Well, thank you all so much for joining us from your various time zones today. So our topic today is climate mis- and disinformation. Now, I think folks are familiar with the idea that false information can spread quite easily around the internet. The issue often crops up at election time in countries around the world or when there's a heated debate going on in society. Perhaps we've had a relative send us something on social media from a dubious source or that is just downright false. I know I have from people on both sides of the political spectrum in the U.S. where I'm from. Unfortunately, this problem has permeated nearly all sectors of society at this point, though some more so than others. But as we're having this discussion for Living Planet and DW Environment, we're going to focus in on how misinformation 
plays in the sphere of climate change information. But before we dig into all of that, I just wanted to define a few terms for our listeners, misinformation and disinformation. These terms are used sometimes interchangeably, but they mean slightly different things. So I was just wondering if one of you would like to start us out with a definition on those two terms. So disinformation is intentionally false, and it's designed to create harm. And it's usually motivated by economic or political reasons, for the most part. While misinformation, which is particularly relevant to the social media sphere, is disinformation that is shared. Sometimes the person who's sharing this content it doesn't know that it, it is false or misleading. So I think this is the main difference. It's interesting because expert on misinformation, Claire Wardle, also defined what is called malinformation, which is genuine information, which is spread or shared to cause harm. So I think these are the sort of main distinctions. Yeah, uh, one thing that I've struggled with with the difference between misinformation and disinformation is the difficulty in distinguishing between the two from a practical point of view. And the reason for this is because the techniques used in misinformation and disinformation often are exactly the same, whether someone is trying to intentionally deceive or whether they're self-deceiving, they will use techniques like cherry picking or relying on fake experts. And from the outside, they look exactly the same. And we don't really know what's going on inside a person's head. So for that reason, I tend to focus on the techniques used to mislead rather than trying to guess what a person's motive is. I think it's also complicated too, because information that might be valid, say 20 years ago, can become outdated or be pulled into a context that is not intended to be used. So let's get into some of the examples of what this actually looks like. Of course, these concepts aren't necessarily new with the advent of the internet or social media, though they're probably spreading a lot more quickly thanks to it. John, your work has looked at blogs and think tanks, and I'm curious, what are some of the most dominant climate misinformation forms or tactics that you've seen on there? We published some research in last November where we trained a machine to detect the different types of climate misinformation. Then we fed two decades of content from blogs and conservative think tanks in order to see what are the the big themes, what are the main categories? We found that the most common category of climate misinformation was attacking climate scientists or attacking climate science itself, whether it's climate models or climate data. The point being to reduce public trust in climate science. I'd like to hear also, maybe Alex, looking towards Wikipedia, how does this problem of misinformation manifest itself there? And what other problems around accurate climate misinformation does Wikipedia struggle with? So, so Wikipedia is written by volunteers. It's gathered over time and it's in over 300 languages. And the climate crisis affects like a non-trivial portion of that content. So we've identified about 25,000 articles that are explicitly about climate change. But if you just think about the like wide reaching impacts of climate change on cities, infrastructure, you know, water, agriculture, there's a lot of other connected topics where climate-related content 
can be shared. And so the problem that we experience on Wikipedia is we also have this problem of content slowly going out of date or content starting in one language like English Wikipedia, where we have these narratives of delay or narratives of confusion showing up in one language and then it can drift into other languages. Or, especially on some of our smaller language Wikipedias, the, those communities might not have someone who has the expertise to see the narratives about climate topics or other environmental topics. And so we kind of have this like weird mix just because of the scale and the complexity of working in a multilingual community. Yeah, that's super interesting and, and really moving in different directions and, and speeds than we see on, on some other websites and platforms. Stella, I wanted to turn to you. You've done quite a bit of research and writing about the history of climate disinformation. Can you tell us a bit about how it got its start and what interests were driving it and still drive it today in these online spheres? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of my work has been looking into fossil fuel companies' disinformation and uh, we have to go back to the 70s to kind of understand what happened, because that's when scientists within some of these major fossil fuel companies started to observe and study the, the connection between burning fossil fuels and the production of fossil fuels and growing and increasing emissions and, and, and increasing global temperatures. And the, the CEOs of these companies, the people kind of in the decision-making roles, really knew about this science because the scientists did communicate it to them and did sound the alarm. But uh, rather than act on these, on these studies, on these scientific observations, they kind of put this disinformation campaign in, into motion. You know, the companies knew that governmental regulation on emissions would jeopardize their profits and their business as usual. So the objective was to kind of hinder climate policies and political action on climate as much as possible. And of course, a really big part of this climate disinformation campaign was funding. So funding from fossil fuel uh, companies towards political election campaigns, towards politicians, towards false experts or scientists who were paid to basically promote the denialist message. You know, and then there were front groups and conservative think tanks. So, it's, you know, all of these sort of actors formed what sociologists and social science then started to call the climate denial machine. And of course, then these strategies and tactics changed and, you know, evolved and adapted to different sociopolitical contexts. I wanted to ask about that in terms of what's going on now. I know that Influence Map, a database detailing lobbying actions on climate policy, they recently have put out research that shows how fossil fuel industry campaigns have moved away from denying climate change outright, as a few of you have mentioned, to instead promoting oil and gas as part of the solution, kind of greenwashing these efforts. Is this the main tactic we see now, or what are some of the other tactics in terms of climate disinformation looking like online. And I'm curious, in various countries as well, um, the US, Europe, other places around the world, what, what some of those current trends we're seeing in disinformation look like? I think what's really important is that 
right now, uh, even for fossil fuel companies and their lobbies, uh, it is increasingly harder to deny climate change and denial and deny uh, human responsibility in this phenomenon. So it seems like tactics are shifting towards delaying political action on climate. And I think some of the main ones, especially in Europe, are sort of trying to include fossil fuels and consider them as part of the solution. Yeah, that's a really great summary, Stella. We also found a steady long-term transition away from science denial towards solutions-based misinformation. So that solutions misinformation covers a whole range of different things, and it, it can vary from country to country. For example, in the US, the dominant type of solutions misinformation was arguing that climate policy or climate action would be harmful, harmful to the economy, raising prices, harming working families. Whereas in Australia, where I'm based, renewables misinformation or attacking renewables was the dominant form of solutions misinformation. And so I think that, uh, well, one thing we've concluded from our research is that solutions misinformation is the future of climate misinformation. So we can expect to see more attacking renewables or promoting fossil fuels. Stella touched on natural gas. Just that phrase, natural gas, is, is a really elegant piece of greenwashing because it's a very carefully honed term that conveys this impression of it being natural and good for the environment when it's really methane gas. And researchers at Yale have found that if you call it natural gas, people are supportive of it. If you call it methane gas, the more accurate term, people aren't supportive of it. So that's a very clever and subtle piece of greenwashing. One more technique I think is important for people to recognize is the fossil fuel industry turning the blame for climate change onto us as individuals. And an example of this is the carbon footprint calculator which was actually pioneered by fossil fuel companies. They funded it as a way of blaming us for climate change and making us responsible for changing our individual carbon footprint as a way to deflect attention away from society transitioning away from fossil fuels. That's not to say that we shouldn't be as individuals trying to reduce our emissions, but that can only get us so far to really meaningfully solve climate change we need to transition away from fossil fuels. Just a reminder, you're listening to a special edition of Living Planet from DW that originally aired on Twitter Spaces. I'm Sam Baker. I hope you're enjoying this conversation that we had all about climate disinformation and what to do about it, along with our guests, researcher John Cook, who you just heard there from Monash University, journalist and author Stella Levantesi, and Alex Stinson from the Wikimedia Foundation. Now, let's get back to the discussion. Here's Alex Stinson. Yeah, so we don't have as thorough of research as uh, the other panelists do across all these languages because we're just starting to recognize the scope of the problem. But what we do know is that the most dominant problem we have is this kind of aging information. But we also have, I think it was Julia Steinberger recently uh, said on Twitter, there's also this group of debate me bros that are kind of wandering around on the edge of climate communication who are like, no, 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 like talk to us in these platforms or environments that allow this disinformation to flourish. Like those people, their articles and like companies that are greenwashing and stuff, every once in a while will land 
on Wikipedia, either their followers or they themselves will like show up and start manipulating the narrative around. It's usually biographies or companies. And then the last bit is when there is this kind of narrative of growthism or economic development, when that is the vehicle in which people try to deny climate change, um, we sometimes see folks come in and try to manipulate uh, pages. And the example that most stands out to me is we found a small group of editors trying to erase the impact on indigenous peoples and the Amazon of road building in Brazil. They were like editing Spanish, Portuguese, and English Wikipedias, uh, trying to actively remove the like documented environmental impact studies of these roads, the government calculated statistics about deforestation around these roads. And so we're, we're seeing like enough of it to be like, oh, okay, our immune system, that stuff's not getting caught as easily. And I think it's really impactful if you think about what does climate communication need to do for us in our lifetimes, right? It needs to enable billions of small decisions in the face of like a increasingly uncertain or increasingly confusing world. We're walking into a moment of shocking complexity, right? And there's going to be a lot of local decision makers who are operating in their own language getting a lot of confusing narratives thrown at them. And if they like do a little bit of research about a road or a coal company or whatever, and that information's not there, it's been actively removed, it's pretty insidious. Alex, you couldn't have provided a better segue if I had told you to myself. Our next question comes from a tweet from Erica Marzano, who asks, is climate misinformation having an impact on climate policy as well, or is it affecting mainly the everyday audience? And I was curious if you guys can just break down why exactly this climate disinformation is so dangerous and the ways in which it really leads to action or lack of action in our society? The answer is definitely yes to that question. It absolutely affects the audience and the public, but it also affects climate policies. And that's sort of why we're so slow on climate action now. And and part of the reason for that is that these strategies have been incredibly effective. And they've been effective both on sort of confusing the public on this issue but also in in delaying and hindering climate policies. I actually want to also kind of underscore an analysis conducted by Diesmog in 2021, because I think it really sort of gives an idea of how significant some of these strategies are. And it analyzed over 3,000 adverts and promotions in social media, such as Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and even YouTube, from six European fossil fuel companies. And basically, the analysis found that all of the companies are greenwashing their advertisement advertisements online, and, and they don't accurately reflect their business activities, or they overemphasize their green activities or underemphasize their fossil fuel activities. And I think this is kind of extremely indicative of how much these strategies have been going on for, but also how much they're still kind of used actively in different spaces, online, in politics, to communicate to consumers and to the public and to citizens. 
I want to talk a bit about social media in particular, as you brought up there. You know, I think it often is the bad guy for society's ills these days, but it's been painted as such for a few reasons to do with how information spreads on various platforms. I'm curious how you all think social media is making climate disinformation worse. Is it just a matter of algorithms and the sheer speed of it? Or what specifically about platforms like Facebook or YouTube allows this information to spread so rapidly and so wide? Well, if I could jump in uh, as someone who's been collaborating with Facebook over the last year, but also quite critical of Facebook as well. So some of the ways that social media make misinformation worse is, as you say, the speed and the algorithms. They allow a single individual to potentially reach millions. It removes the gatekeepers that uh, mainstream media provide to offer a level of quality control. And the algorithms, social media platforms business model is dependent on users interacting with the content, clicking, liking, sharing, and misinformation is more likely to be clicked, liked, and shared. And so they have this um, built-in incentive to have misinformation spreading through their platforms. And studies have shown that misinformation is more likely to be spread and go viral than accurate information. So there's big challenges there. And I think the main thing to say about the solutions for social media platforms and misinformation is that there needs to be a whole suite of tools used. I don't think there's a single magic bullet that a social media platform can say, well, we've, we've done this one thing and therefore we fixed it or that's all we can do. I think they need to throw everything at this because it is such a complex, interconnected and big problem that multiple tools are needed. I'm curious, Alex, with Wikipedia, of course, not a social media company, what do you think social media companies could learn from Wikipedia's model and how it differs with with having editors and having kind of more of a community approach to it? Wikipedia is kind of different in that, you know, we don't run ads. We're very connected to Google, being at the top of Google searches, but that's because it's a large collection of information that's generally thought to be trustworthy by the public. And the fact that our content is updating and relevant and answers questions incrementally with increasing impact over time is like what brings value. We're like a 10, 20 hundred year project, not a, we need to get your clicks tomorrow project. And so it's just, it's a very different dynamic. Now, what you can do is leverage platforms like us or like these fact-checking websites to better put the disinformation in context. I think a lot of the problems here, and there's been some good research on this, is when folks see disinformation and these like click-oriented platforms, they aren't being asked to question their consumption of it. Twitter recently put that, do you want to read this before you retweet button on? And that actually changed a lot of behavior. And it's actually quite a good function. What it does is it puts that, am I clicking just to create interactions or am I clicking because I actually want to communicate this? Uh, That moment is really important for folks. Something that also really helps individuals is trying to first of all understand that facts aren't really enough and that's why it's really important to sort of recognize what the arguments used are and what the strategies are and what the different tactics are and 
and this is of course isn't not relevant to social media platforms only but it also also relevant to you know what you're reading or what you're listening to or political declarations or what a company is trying to communicate so trying to really understand what these strategies are and how they're being used and what the motives behind uh, certain arguments are and then trying to kind of pick those strategies apart and the more you do it the more you sort of get used to noticing or really seeing certain things for what they are and not for what they're trying to promote and it's also kind of the reason why I wrote Ibu Jardi de Klima, my book, which Sam mentioned before is, you know, translated as Climate Liars, because it's really important to sort of offer the tools to the public uh, in order for the public to really understand the issue and the way that information is being manipulated or distorted to obtain certain political or economic objectives. And I think this is really crucial. I want to I want to talk about that a little bit because um a few of you have developed some really great strategies on this. So, how can we best identify misinformation online? I mean, what lines of defense do we as consumers as online users as citizens need to develop and how can we make sure that we ourselves aren't susceptible to this or help others we know and love to avoid it john i know you've spent a lot of time researching this so maybe you can you can start us off on this one when people realize the different rhetorical tricks that are used to distort the facts they're less likely to be misled by misinformation And so most of my work over the last half decade has been, well, how do you put that into practice? And again, as Stella said, the more people practice spotting misinformation, the better they get at it. So that led me to exploring games as a way to build public resilience against misinformation because games can motivate people to practice critical thinking. That's why we brought out the Cranky Uncle game. And John, can you just briefly explain for people what this game is? So it's a game on your phone and a little bit how it works and, and how you've used it with students and classrooms in particular. Yeah, over the last 10 years, I've been building up a, a taxonomy of different rhetorical techniques used in climate misinformation. Uh, and it's now a very big taxonomy. It's a lot of information to take in. So I've been struggling with how do you help people learn them? Uh, and uh, eventually um, we arrived at putting all these techniques into a game where the game basically has a cranky uncle cartoon character who explains all the techniques he uses to deny climate science. And then you practice spotting those techniques by being given quiz questions, examples of misinformation, and you have to identify what is the fallacy in each myth. I think uh, I might need to play that a little more just for prepping to see a few of my cranky uncles. So that's awesome. And Alex, when it comes to Wikipedia, in terms of what people can do, I mean, is the main thing recruiting more editors or flagging content when you notice that it's out of date or maybe lacking citations or just inaccurate? What are some of the main things that folks can do? Yeah, I, I mean, first asking yourself, should I learn how to edit Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia is kind of a um, massive global collective literature review, right? Like the mechanic that allows it to grow and prosper and be resilient is the citations. And so I think we really need 
more multilingual individuals, people who are more willing or kind of have the skill and space to make sure that the culturally and linguistically relevant content can travel into the context in which someone will actually make a decision, right? We've just got a couple minutes left here. So I just want to give Stella the last word on this in terms of things we can do as individuals or as groups to dispel some of this misinformation. I just want to mention a few resources to this point. DSMOG has a climate disinformation database, which really has extensive research on individuals and organizations that have helped to delay, distract, and, and deny on the climate crisis. I do want to give a shout out to John's work, uh, his research, and of course, his platform, Skeptical Science as well. And then I think it's really important what Alex was saying about the language barrier. It is crucial that we do get resources and platforms and anything that really can help the public to deal with this issue and the disinformation in different languages, because a lot of this work is in English. But there's a really big language barrier in some countries in the global south, but even in Europe and even in Italy, you know, it's a really huge problem because a lot of Italians do not understand English, you know, in a way that can really help them to sort of recognize and distinguish disinformation. So it is fundamental that we get those resources in as many languages as possible. Well, I'm afraid we have run out of time today for this Twitter space. Thank you all for participating. I really appreciate you being here and for such an enlightening and really engaging conversation. Um, so thanks to our panelists, John Cook, Stella Levantesi, and Alex Stinson. I wanted to say a special thanks to our social media team as well for making this happen. To everyone listening and to our panelists, thanks so much and have a nice evening, afternoon, morning, depending on which time zone you're in. I hope you enjoyed this special conversation we had earlier this week on Twitter Spaces. To find more discussions like this, follow us on Twitter at DW underscore environment, where you'll also be able to find more information about our guests, John, Stella, and Alex. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for DW Environment and Global Ideas. Thanks to Zoran Leutfeld in the studio this week. And thank you for listening. I'm Sam Baker. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Living Planet. For more like it, you can find Living Planet wherever you get your podcasts or at DW.com.